Hey there, you're listening to What the Riff? Join us as we remember the great rock and roll hits from a month between 1965 and 1995. We're going to riff on all things about the bands, the members, and the goings-on during that time. We hope to inspire you to find and download the songs you hear today, whether you're fans who forgot about some of these tracks or maybe never even heard them before. Check out our blog at whattheriff.com or follow us on Facebook at What the Riff. Here's a shout-out to our sponsors, Right Column Financial, offering CFO and bookkeeping services for small business. Stanton Electric, a commercial electrical specialist, and Marbury Creative Group, a brand development agency that helps companies tell it better. So let's turn up the volume and enjoy this episode of What the Riff? Two hot air balloons crash in Alice Springs, Australia, killing 13. A solar flare from the sun creates a geomagnetic storm that affects microchips, halting training on the Toronto stock market, and the first crack in the Iron Curtain when Hungary opens its border to Austria. This is August 1989. You're listening to What the Rip. I'm Wayne. I'm Rob. I'm Brian. And I'm Bruce. And Bruce brings us this classic album. Gentlemen, I give you bad English. That's the group. And the album is also bad English. Do you recognize that voice? The vocalist is John Waite. <laughs> and the keyboardist is Jonathan Kane. Oh, so this is sort of a leftover of Journey and, and the Babies? Or? No, that's a very bad way of saying it. I would rather say <laughs> the Bad English over. is a super group. Yes, oh, okay. they are. They a were. British-American super group comprised of members of Journey and the Babies. So here's the deal. At this time, 89, Journey is on hiatus. So Steve Perry has left. He's kind of incognito. It's not clear that anything is going to happen with them. They'll eventually reform, but for briefly. But but right now it looks like they're done. Um, and uh, John Waite's been doing his solo stuff. Yeah. So here's the deal. From the babies, you get John Waite, who's on lead vocals. You got Rick Phillips on bass, and you've got Jonathan Kane on keyboards who was a member of the Babies before he was a member of Journey. Oh, that's right. So that's the connection. Okay. Then from Journey, you have Neil Sean on lead guitar. Oh, really? Okay. I didn't know he was in this. Yes. And Jonathan Kane. And then Dean Castronovo is on drums, and he would later be the drummer for Journey. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So there's the connection. Wow. I didn't realize that they were tied in that much. Yeah. So... Wayne's pointing over me and saying, Some, say something about the song. This song is really good. I like it. It's, it's called The Best of What I Got. It's the opening track to the album. Uh, and it's the fifth of seven singles that were released from this album. Although this particular one was only released on U.S. rock radio. So it, didn't, it wouldn't be eligible for, like, Billboard Hot 100 or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um. If it sounds familiar, it may be because it was featured in the credits to the film Tango and Cash. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, one of our favorite movies, I'm sure. <laughs> was that the one with Tom Hanks and the dog? Uh, no, it was. It was. Uh, I think Tango and Cash had Kurt Russell and uh, Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, it was a oh. buddy movie, buddy cop type of thing. Okay, right? L- listen to that guitar. Oh yeah, Neil Schoen. I mean, he goes back obviously all the way to Santana. 
I mean, he was early San Francisco. We'll, we'll discuss that. We'll probably we'll be doing a Journey album, or probably an early Journey album soon. And, I mean, yeah, he's he's been around for a long, long time. Yeah. So I liked this one, and, and I thought, you know, it it's, it's not exactly a deep cut, but it kind of is because – it wasn't released outside of the U.S. and it wasn't released on the pop charts. Uh, well, this is a fun song. It's just it's 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 bouncy. Of course, the babies. You can hear John Waite. You know, I can hear the babies all throughout that. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, but yeah, yeah, fun. Got a good sound. So um, this one, it did hit number nine on the mainstream rock charts, and Kane, Shone, and Waite were all involved in writing this one. I'm familiar with it, but I probably haven't heard it in a long time. Right, right. Well, that's the thing. This one, the the one of the reasons I wanted to do this is because I started looking at it, and there are a number of songs that you would recognize if you heard them, but you probably haven't heard them for a while. I'm with Rob on this one. That I haven't heard that song in a long time. Yeah, but I enjoyed that. The band was initially formed by Kane, Sean, and Wait, and um, then they brought in you know some of the others. This one, by the way, is a deeper cut. This is called Lay Down. Um, it was written by Waite, Sean, and Kane, and it was not released as a single from the album at all. So if you haven't, you probably have not heard this song at all, but I, I enjoyed it. It's more rocking. It's more upbeat. Um, the lyrics are pretty straightforward. It's a guy coming back from a long trip. I'm assuming the, you know, kind of like the, uh, the, the, a road trip for these uh, for the for the musicians coming back to meet his girl and they're about to have at it. A rolling sea hay. So what is bad English? Where do you think that came from? Somebody who talks real good. Somebody probably got D's in English <laughs> in college like I did. You sure got a pretty mouth. <laughs> I was kind of thinking it was because. You know, the group is mixed. There's British folks and there's English, or British folks and American folks. Kind of like Foreigner. Yeah, like Foreigner. I was thinking, you know, a bad Englishman or something like that. But no, no, that's not where it comes from. They were playing pool one night. And uh, Waite was, uh, I believe it was Waite that was uh, was shooting. And um, they had, uh, it's a it's a pool turn. Yeah. So Spin. Yeah. If you're, if you, do y'all play pool? I I played it, but I mean, yeah. But I have heard only little, only while drinking massive amounts of alcohol, and there happens to be a pool hall around. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard the term "put a little English on the ball." Right. Yeah. That's that's where it comes from. Uh, John Waite missed a shot, and Jonathan Kane made a comment about how bad his English is. And English is what you're doing. You you hit the ball. And depending on where you hit the cue ball, you can make it back up. You can make it move forward. Right. You can line up your next shot. Yep. So that's so funny because I always thought it had to do with language. Yeah. So that was uh, or English muffins. Could be English muffins. <laughs> I think that would have been a better name for their band. Yeah. The English muffins. <laughs> I don't know if English muffins would have worked quite as well, but you know. Um, so, Bad English is called a glam metal band, but I don't... I'm not hearing any metal in this. No. There's none. I mean, there, there's glam. It may it, it may, not, may not even be glam rock. I mean, it's... It, I mean, it rocks, but it's... it's 
is setting its time. I mean, were they? Did they look glam? Like were they? Yeah, if you look at the videos. Okay. So here's so here's the deal. They were they were really walking a thin line with this group, right? They they didn't want to sound too much like either Journey or John Waite's solo stuff or the babies and, and I mean just having John Waite sing it's hard it's hard yeah. to not get that, right? Um so they wanted to have kind of their own sound. The other thing is, this is nineteen eighty nine. This is the era of highly produced hair metal bands, right? Yep. It is, hair metal is is very, very corporate at the time. And so they're fighting against that kind of current as well. I, I, but ha- hair metal was trying to appeal to the female audience. And you already had two groups, the Journey and the Babies, were already crossing over to that. Mm-hmm. So I, I, their marketing to me is off, was off on this. I mean, though... They turned out to be a, you know, obviously in the late 80s and early 90s, they were big. Mm-hmm. But they were big because females enjoyed this music. not, right. And they weren't trying to find a heavy metal group. I mean, like you said, this entire, this is probably the hardest rock song on there. This is nowhere close to heavy metal. Right, right. So, according to Wait, when they got together, they wrote about 40 songs in about six months. But... A lot of them weren't very good. Uh, He said, I kept trying to write stuff that would blow the roof off. It was like walking on thin ice. We didn't want it sounding too much like one thing or another, Journey or John Waite. But uh, the debut album went to number 21. This is the debut uh, on the Billboard 200s, and they were able to find some good stuff on that list of 40 songs, I think. Now, this song you may recognize. This is the one that I'm, I like the most from Bad English. Listen to that guitar. I do remember this one now, but it's been years since I've heard it. Do you remember it? Yep. This was written by Wait Kane and Mark Spiro. Mark Spiro is a songwriter and record producer, and he worked with a lot of musicians, including John Waite, Julian Lennon, Selena, Mr. Big... Ario Speedwagon, folks like that. I'm hearing Mr. Big in this, really. Are you really? Yeah, I am. I'm sort of that has that kind of. Now it's picking up though. That first yeah. part, I guess. This, this is. This is the chorus. But you know what I'm hearing a lot of too is a lot of focus on the keyboards, and yeah. I think that's a lot to do with Kane's influence on this thing. Yeah. So he's just playing chords, but you can hear him as a really pronounced yeah. instrument here. Yeah. This is uh, this song is primarily John Waite's uh, concept. It, it comes from Anne Rice's vampire novels, and this is not the first time oh, really? we've run across that. But he was reading; they'd go off and read these books, and he was reading the Anne Rice series, and and so this whole thing is about it's about possession it's about lust it's about a longing that goes on throughout eternity you know so you can kind of get that with the minor key and the kind of you know a spooky motif I just like the sound of this. This was the first single that they released. Um, and uh, and I think it's important. This is where 
uh, I think I mentioned Spiro. He wrote five different songs on this, or he collaborated on five different songs. And this was a part of that kind of working with the corporate powers that be versus, you know, kind of doing their own thing. And you'll get that as, as time goes on. Ultimately, that's going to be a problem for them. Bruce, you may have said this, but what about their albums? How many albums did they do, and which one is this? They did two. Okay. The debut is this one, and yep. there was another one, and I'm trying to remember the name of it. It was like Kickback or Feedback. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll have to. I'll, I'll tell you that in a little bit. But that album was. This was pretty much it. This was their high water mark. The other album did not do very well. Did uh, like so frequently happens? Did egos get in the way? I think there were two things that really happened. One is, and, and I'll talk about this when we get to the next song. Oh, okay. But one is that corporate versus doing your own thing. Mm. But the other thing is Journey started to kind of oh, come yeah, back. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Right? And so there were egos involved. Wait and Kane kind of didn't get along. Yeah. Um, they, they had a hard time. And so, yeah, that happened. But the corporate versus individual contribution it was a, was I'm loving this part man it's just it's just picking up this is a running song you can, I don't remember you can it. Run to this yeah you're right Wayne I would uh, probably put it on my playlist for running yeah I'll have to take a look at that see what the the meter is because uh, you need to have the right beat yeah the right beat and it's and it's pushing forward it's you can it, you know they they'll hit a chord or not the chorus but a, you know a theme part of the song and then they'll kick into this chorus and suddenly you're going okay now you know, you can get that pumping going. Yeah, it will keep you. If you've got the right you know, beats per second, yeah. it will keep you moving at the right pace, won't it? I don't remember uh, hearing this song. Before. You don't remember this one? Oh. No. I loved this one. And the video is pretty good. It's the standard late 80s video. It might have Tawny Katane in it. I'm trying to remember if that was one that she did or not. You mean White Snake Let Her Get Away? Might do it. She was, she was a... A hot commodity. Yes. And also a hot mess. Of course, <laughs> we'll uh, post the video on our Facebook page. Wayne does a good job of that. When I can remember. <laughs> that was definitely my favorite of the Bad English. The other album is called Backlash. Oh, uh, yes. And honestly, I haven't listened to it, but the my understanding is that, that it, it certainly didn't do that well. This is more Wayne's type of song. It doesn't sound like a song I know. Now, I like John Wayne, so, I mean. He does a good ballad, doesn't he? Yeah, his voice. I mean, my goodness. Missing you. So this was the big hit. This this song is called When I See You Smile. And it was written by Diane Warren. Yep. Y'all recognize that name? Feel the feel the beat of the rhythm of the night was one of her songs, and she did some Celine Dion, Dion songs as well. She did a ton of hits. She said, "Did because you love me" yep. by Celine Dion. Yep. She did "I Get Weak" by Belinda Carlisle, yep. and of course, she did "Blame It on the Rain" by Millie Vanilli. Yes. And I bet you they sang on that too, right? <laughs> Somebody did. All right. Now, do you recognize the song? They used to wear this out on Rock 103 in Memphis. Yeah, that old uh, glam metal band yeah. song. <laughs> this is the lighter in the air. There you go. 
This one went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Really? Yep. It was a huge hit. And it also was the kiss of death for the group. Oh, it was? Yep. Sweet would later say this song is not what the band should have been doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea was to cut it and then tell the A&R guys, look, we tried to do the the ballad and it just didn't work out. You know, that, that was kind of the idea, but it was really good. And they knew it was really good when they did it. They knew they had a hit, and sure enough, it was a hit. Um, when it came time to, follow the, to do the follow-up, there's a tug-of-war going on because part of the band wants that hit, right? Yeah. And then part of the band wants to say, you know, let, you know let's, let's throw out this whole corporate thing and do our own thing. Uh, so you've got that creativity versus commercialism thing going on. Yep. And that was a big part of the breakup. You know, it's so hard to do a hit song. But here, this is John Waite's third rendition of what he's doing. He was with the babies. Mm-hmm. He had all those baby songs and everything else. Great, great music. Then he does it on his own, mm-hmm. you know, as a, you know, in the early and mid-80s. And now he's back again doing another hit song. It's really his his work through that is just yeah. tremendous. The I voice mean, certainly, isn't it? But I mean, when you think about uh, Diane Warren writing, and, and she did, she wrote. It, it had to be over a hundred songs yeah. that that she wrote. You know, this is the hit maker of the '80s that's doing yeah. this. And then I, I deliberately mentioned the Millie Vanilli thing because. That's also kind of where the corporate comes in. That's that was a group that was entirely image driven. It was yeah, a ghost entirely. group from the start. Yeah, <laughs> but that kind of thing was going on, and I'm, I'm, I assume that it still does. But but this was kind of the height of the hair metal corporatism right here, and and very shortly, just a few years later on, you would see that fall off like disco did in the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah, Diane Warren, unfortunately, died just, I'd say, less than five years ago. It was pretty recent, but, yeah, she passed away. Oh, really? Okay, I didn't see that. Yeah. I do remember this song, and I remember they overplayed it so much. I oh, actually yeah. got tired of it. So, ditto. Yeah. I like John Waite's earlier stuff better, but I'm glad you brought this album, uh, Bruce. Oh, yeah. Well, if I, I'm looking it up, I don't think I think Diane Warren is still alive. Uh, okay, I thought she. Okay, well, I think I think she is. I don't see anything that says that she she uh, she passed. I may be thinking of somebody else. My apologies. Her debut album was released in August of 2021. Okay, I'm thinking of somebody else. <laughs> All right. Well, now we're going on to our entertainment track brought to us by Monkey Wrench Brewing. And. Coming out in August 1989, you heard this song, Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter by Iron Maiden. It was on Nightmare on Elm Street. Dream child. Ah, Nightmare on Elm Street 4? No, this is 5. 5. 5. Four, what, 4 was Dream Warriors. We talked about that. How many do they have? I think they're up to 15. Probably <laughs> And so. counting. Also, a great, great movie, Parenthood. You remember Steve Martin, Rick yeah. Reynolds? Yep. Keanu Reeves was in this. I don't remember that, but I, I remember the movie. It was very funny. 
It's probably one of the top movies from uh, August 89. Lock Up, a prison action film with Sylvester Stallone and Donald Sutherland. The Abyss, James Cameron. That was a very good movie. Yeah. I don't know if you, if you guys that saw that. That had that first... The CGI. Liquid, yeah. yeah, liquid met and obviously they would do it in Terminator 2. Yeah. Uncle Buck. Our friend John Candy, yeah. man, that was funny. Yes, that was right. a classic. A movie I didn't see, and it's just and I kind of go, Michael J. Fox and Sean Penn were in a war movie called Casualties of War. Yes, I remember that. I don't think I saw that. I, I never saw it, but I remember the, the commercial for it. Little Monsters is a comedy with Fred Savage and Howie Mandel. Just remember that. Howie Mandel was like some little monster or something. Hmm. The Package was a thriller with Gene Hackman and Tommy Lee Jones. I don't remember it, but that actually sounds pretty good for those two actors in there. Wired, uh, a bibliographical film of John Belushi. Um, and this has got me in trouble. <laughs> or whatever. Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Uh, it was... Sort of you know, a pilot tells us of a of a guy who videotapes women about mm-hmm. the sexual fantasies and stuff, and it was a major release if you remember that. I don't know if you remember this. I remember one. when it came out. Yeah. Yeah, and I I was dating this woman. I go, hey, let's go see this. She goes, I'm not going to a rated X movie with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going. It's a well well round movie and everything. So uh, on TV of August 1989. In a press conference on CNN and ESPN, uh, baseball commissioner uh, Bart Giamatti tells the world that Pete Rose is ineligible for the uh, Hall of Fame and is banned for life from uh, baseball. Oh, is this where it started? Yes. Wow. I saw him on TV last night sitting in the state in the stadium. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's still a highly controversial topic. Yeah. Kind of like the designated hitter rule. Mm. Amanda Blake died. Uh, you may not remember her as that name, but you remember Kitty Russell from Gunsmoke. Miss mm. Kitty. Ending in uh, August of 1989, Highway to Heaven. That was on for five years. Michael Landon. Yeah. And then the only thing that premiered in TV at this time, and I didn't see a single one of these, Saved by the Bell. Never saw it. I never saw it. Saved by the bell. It rings a bell, but, uh, <laughs> well, we weren't really in the target market yeah, for that no. one. I think we were a little older for that, but most of you guys also. Okay, I'm loving this, man. I know. That's <laughs> solid, isn't it? it? Wasn't Saved by the Bell a Saturday morning show or something? No, no, it, it, it was Sunday night is when it premiered. So, oh. There's a character called Screech. Yeah, that's yeah. what it was. And that's all I remember. There are a number of actors who got their start yeah. on Saved by the Bell. Yeah. Well, the Rolling Stones opened their Steel Wills tour. If we're kind of looking at a little bit of I remember music. that. They came to Georgia Tech. Yeah, I, w- I went to that concert. So. And uh, the Moscow Music Peace Festival with Bon Jovi, Ozzy Osbourne, Motley Crue, Skid Row, Cinderella, and the Scorpions. It was in, obviously, the Soviet Union at the time. Wow. That's your entertainment from August 1989. All right. So now we're moving on to staff picks, and we're starting off with Brian. See if you remember this, guys. Oh, yeah. 
I got a little change in my pocket going jingling-a-lang. <laughs> oh, uh, we did that one. They borrowed that riff. They sure did. <laughs> what the riff? Exactly. This is L.A.'s based Great White. And this is their biggest hit that they ever released. Is it bigger than, um, was it Rock Me? Was yep. it the other one? Yep. I liked Rock Me. I yes. thought that was yeah. a good song. That was more of a rock. This was definitely pop-oriented. This is a hair metal pop song that they were all trying to get. Yeah. Something that I did not know, this is a cover. Is it really? From a 1975 single by Ian Hunter. Remember Ian Hunter? Yeah. Um, where does where does Ian Hunter fit in? Is he a soloist or is he in a band? He was a great. He was a British uh, in a British group or a solo, hmm. and uh, the band had a shark motif going and named their 1987 album Once Bitten. But this was now the follow up called Twice Shy. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> All right, that makes sense. So that's pretty cool. So for the follow up, uh, they they named the album Twice Shy, which is completing the expression of this song and it means avoiding what hurt you in the past as we can you know, or fool me once shame on me yeah or shame on you fool me twice shame on me yeah. kind of thing yep ah Ian Hunter was in the rock band Mott the Hoople ah yeah okay thank you which we all know yes they're actually, they, I remember... We they, covered that, that album in uh, Never. Yeah, we haven't really covered that album. That group has come up before. I'm yeah, trying yeah. to remember. Somebody had given a song to Mott the Hoople, as I recall. Now, the original with Ian Hunter and Mott the Hoople, this was not a, a hit in the U.S. Well, it's like the Slade songs that were, were done, you know, in the 80s. You know, they wrote several songs, yeah. and everybody, you know... But like me... Many of the listeners thought this is original material. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, this sounds, this could be quite right right here. Oh, I yeah. mean, really, I mean, this is all that stuff, you know. But this song was about life on the road. Some of the lyrics are a little risque. You know, before he got his hands across the state line, I love that line. <laughs> so, uh, Mark, uh, Mark Kendall was uh, the great white guitarist. He said, we loved it because... It was about being on the road, which was our whole thing. We never went home. We were just literally on the road all the time, so it fit in that sense. Can you imagine living on the road for years at a time? They're still out there doing it. I, I know I've seen them on those rock cruises and stuff oh, like wow. that. And, yeah. and that tour did Wasn't it the Great White that had the big fire? Well, we're going to talk about that, but oh, yes. Okay, all right. Yes. I won't, I'll, sorry, stopping no, on your That's okay. On the lead. But Great White wasn't familiar with this song at all. The original from Ian Hunter and, and Mata Hoople. Yeah. It was Izzy Stradlin of Guns N' Roses who had the idea for them to cover it. Both bands were managed by Alan Niven. And so he brought it to Alan Niven, and the rest, as they say, is history. He said they ought to do it, and they did it. And it went to number one. Hmm. But back to what you were referring to, Wayne. Their next album tanked. And so they were basically relegated down to just bars, small venues and things. Did but you mean to say tanked for Great White? <laughs> <laughs> well no played. No pun intended, but thank you for pointing that out, Rob. But anyway, uh, 
it was up in uh, New Hampshire, I believe, wasn't it, or somewhere up there in the Northeast, and they had a show for maybe. Oh yeah, I remember small that. Venue. Okay, their pyrotechnics didn't adjust well to the small venue, or that was the rumor, and it exploded. It was like a wooden structure, or yes, something, wasn't it? Was poorly yeah. ventilated, and it was terribly designed for escaping. Also, they had on the back side, they had those uh, styrofoam things or whatever, you know, the, yeah. the, the kind of keep the sound from bouncing off the walls. And that was what was flammable. And so when the fire Texas, that caught that on fire and it just, it just, you know, it's like lighting a match. It yep. A yeah. hundred people died that night. Yeah. Including their bassist. Wow. So, oh, yeah, it was not a good thing. But now they're still touring. Like you said, there's two versions of it. The band split up because they just just didn't get along well. And so there's Jack Russell, who had a long history uh, of addiction and everything. He had a big fall, and he took his own version of, of Great White, and the other band members took their own Great White. So you got Jack Russell's version and the original. Hmm. Kind of like ELO. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff Lynn's ELO. All right, great. Well, now we're going on to our next staff pick, which is brought to us by Wayne. All right, guys. For a group that had such a dour look and their songs are dour, they wrote some good love songs. And my friends, we have the cure love song. I still hear this today on First Wave. Oh, yeah. And it is frequently that I hear it. I have to admit, when the cure was in its heyday, I was not a fan. This is this, this did not attract. They at they all grow on you over time, don't they? Uh, they did. That's exactly what I got written down. But they grew on me. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I started to enjoy their music, and I mean, and the compositions of their songs. I mean, all I started, you know, pictures of you. I just when I started really listening to that song, I just was going, oh my goodness, this this is heartache, you know, at the extreme. Rob, you got to appreciate this. The oh, keyboards. Yeah. The keyboards that are playing some stringed instrument. I mean, <laughs> the more I listen to it, I, I go, oh, man, this is really well-crafted. This is really kind of, I mean, if you look on a monitor, this thing's just almost flat all the way across. But you start listening, they, they've got little things going in and out. Very well-crafted. A lot of hooks. I mean, yeah. that, that little ding. And you're sitting there going, oh, wait a minute, I'm waiting to hear that again. You know, just a ding, you know. That's I will nice always sound. love you. Yes, nice song. This was a love song to Robert Smith, who was the the Cure's lead singer, as a wedding present to his soon-to-be wife Mary Poole. And he gave it to her just before they got married in 1988. The whole song and everything. That's I mean, interesting. Rob Marbury on keyboards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he he met her at age of 14 and they stayed together through this entire time this is interesting he says that he credits her with saving his life by pulling him out of the abyss when he went through some self-destructive periods <laughs> I'm guessing drugs <laughs> well what do you think how, what do you, how do you define the cure I mean I, I'm the just, music they're, they're uh, 
they're an emo band in in, in my mind. I was I had, very dark, very. Black. I had that question mark. Are, is this the emo? I mean, they're kind of. I mean, it's alternative. Beta male type stuff. Goth is what I kind goth, of. Goth, yeah, goth. goth. I can see goth. Because I think of them. I mean, I I, I visualize <laughs> South Park and those kids that are smoking in the back. The goth kids burn down yeah. the hot topic. Yeah. I've always put them in new wave. I mean, you have you know they're brooding. You know they're 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 just they're mopey. They're they're I don't know. It's almost depressing. But this is a positive song. I would not want to go have a beer with these guys because I feel like you'd want to go shoot yourself afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) All right, The Cure, Love Song. All right, thanks. Moving on to our next staff pick, we're going to Rob. This one one is more uplifting than that. Let's get out of emo and listen to these acoustic guitars here. Just a happy sound there. This... It's a folk rock duo from Atlanta, Amy Ray and Emily Sailors, the Indigo Girls. This is a huge group here in Georgia. Yes. Yes, it is. If you're listening outside of here, you may not be as familiar with them, but they did, they did pretty well. This was their second album, and... They were with Epic Records, and this went platinum. So they did get quite a few plays out of it. This, the harmonies of these two are, are just really good, and it's a very simple. It's a it's it's a very clean. Um, I don't know how to describe it. It's it's in a day where everything is overproduced. Yeah. This does not feel produced. Well, I think that's the key. To your point, everything was so overproduced, and this is just a breath of fresh air. All right, I'm gonna blow this up. <laughs> all right, all right. When I was when I first moved in '87 to Atlanta, friends of ours, we always wanted to go to bars and Little Five Points Pub down in Little Five Points, Atlanta. I probably saw the Indigo Girls three or four times just playing in this pub. Yeah, their first album was more of an independent album. And, yeah, I mean, you have two guitars. you got somebody in the background. I mean, I remember when they first brought drums up, and everybody looked around just going, what the heck is this? This is not the Indigo Girls. Obviously, you got it here. you got some tambourines. Yeah. You have some stuff there. you even got some uh, little keyboards and stuff back there. So let me, yeah, let me let me pick up a couple of things here. What's important to know is that being in Atlanta, they started becoming friends with the Atlanta and Athens music scene, and the people who joined them in their band for this album are we're familiar with. I'm guessing REM, Michael Stipe. Mike Mills, Peter Buck, and Bill Berry. <laughs> there we go. So the members are Amy Ray, lead vocals and guitars. Emily Sailors, lead vocals and guitars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then you've got 15 other artists on this hmm. album. 15. And the ones that I recognize, of course, were the members of R.E.M. And Michael Stipe sang on Kid Fears. And the other members performed on a song, a track called Tried to Be True. They were friends in high school in Decatur, Georgia. They 
attended Emory University, and that's where they became the Indigo Girls. And yes, they are lesbians. They are political activists. They probably hate me. <laughs> and your patriarchy. But this is a beautiful song. This is a beautiful song. I want to say one thing about this album compared to what happened is is they were up for Best New Artist uh, for a Grammy, and Millie Vanilli won it, and I thought for sure they were going to win it. And I told Amy Ray myself when I met her that they should have won that then. And she just goes, you remember that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty funny. All right. Hope you enjoyed that. Now we're moving on to the man who started it all. Bruce, what are you going to bring and share for us here? All right. I don't know about you guys. I had forgotten about this song until I was doing, I did research for Bad English, and then I was looking, okay, what else can I do? I almost picked a song from Anderson Bruford Wakeman Howe, um, but I decided not to. That one was about six minutes long. I think it was nine minutes long. It might yeah, it was, it was nine. very, very It long. was nine minutes. I remember it. Because <laughs> they were... What was left over, yes, but they couldn't call him yes. Yeah, so there was a there was a big deal there. So yes broke up in 1988, and uh, John Anderson left to form Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman, Howe. Uh, and then Trevor Rabin decided to release his fourth studio album called Can't Look Away. And this is the hit single from that. The album peaked at number 111 on the Billboard 200. (laughs) So not that high, but the single hit number three on the mainstream rock chart, and it was nominated for a Grammy for Best Short Form Music Video. Now I remember it. Let it get to the chorus and see if you recognize it. You recognize it now? I do. It. Um, I thought this was a maybe a lesser known Yes single. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that it just definitely has that. Uh, Nine zero one two five. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that was the thing. Trevor Rabin was a big part of the popular version of Yes. So when they released nine zero one two five, the single version, not not the the prog rock version. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah, Yes was popular in prog rock circles, you know, for from almost their founding. But uh, when they came out with the uh, the nine zero one two five in in the uh, early eighties, a lot of the single appeal, the owner of a lonely heart type of thing, that's Trevor Raven. So yeah, Anderson, Bruford, Rakeman, Howe, the songs are really long, there's not really a single in there, it's more of a, you know, it's more of a, not concept album, but prog rock album, Um, but interestingly, John Anderson reached out to Trevor Rabin to see if he would submit a song for the second Anderson Bruford Wakeman Howe. I didn't album. know there were two albums of theirs. There's not. Oh, okay. That's what I thought. So he had reached out to Trevor Rabin and there was a, a comment and I'm gonna I don't know if I'll get it exactly right, but the comment was that Trevor Rabin took it to mean we don't have a single. <laughs> <laughs> 
on this album. We'd really like to have a single, so could you could you do us a solid here? Could you could you get us a a song that could maybe? I want to say '91. Yes, came out with another album, and obviously John Anderson was in that. They song. did indeed. Oh, okay, I'm jumping ahead. They Sorry. Did. No, you're segueing perfectly okay. into what I'm what I'm saying. So he actually submitted three songs and said, "Pick one." And Anderson was like, "Wow." All three of these are really good. And all of this discussion and the the recording company, all of that kind of encouraged them to get together. And what would ha- result from all of that is the eight-man formation of Yes for the Union album in 1991. And I saw that at concert also. I did too. Fantastic concert. Had so many of the great Yes individuals in it. It was like herding cats to keep those guys. Yeah, it was together. a classic lineup. I mean, had to, I mean, yeah. I don't. I think Rick Rakeman is the only one that wasn't one of the early members that wasn't there. Besides yeah. that, had Chris Squire, had Steve Howe, but these are all larger than life personalities that are yeah. involved with that, and it just wasn't sustainable. But uh, but anyway, this is Trevor Raven's single, something to hold on to, and. It's just a neat song. I, I, I just enjoyed it. In the midst of a lot of corporate things that are going on, Trevor Raven's out there doing his thing. Oh, yeah. That's great. Well, now we're going to move on to, we usually either do a laugh track or an instrumental track to round out the podcast. And Wayne picked this one out for us. No, I didn't, but oh. I picked this one out for us. <laughs> oh, Bruce picked yeah, this This is a out. few months ago that uh, the that uh, Queen came out with the Miracle, and this is a an instrumental in that. Okay, and it's short, so go away. Chinese torture. All right, top hits of August 1989. Right here waiting was Richard Marks. On your own, Bobby Brown. Cold-hearted Paul Abdul, and don't want to lose you, Gloria Estefan. I don't remember any of those. <laughs> All right. Some of the groups that had some uh, albums out, Bee Gees, one. I think they were well past their time at that time. They George- had some hits from that, though. Oh, did they? That's okay. Good. George Clinton, The Cinderella's Theory. Testament, Practice What You Teach. White Lion, Big Game. Mm. Starship, Love Among Cannibals. Red Hot Chili Peppers, Mother's Milk. I'm kind of surprised no one picked something off of that one. We may have to do that album. Jethro Tull, Rock Island. I think that's where they won Best Heavy Metal Artist. Was that Farm Farm on the Freeway? Did that come from that? I don't know. L.A. Guns, The Beach Boys, Elton John and the Rolling Stones. All albums in August 1989. That was your music. You've been listening to What to Riff. I'm Wayne. I'm Rob. I'm Brian. And I'm Bruce. See you guys next time. Enjoy it. Thanks for listening to What the Riff? We hope you enjoyed the songs we had on tap today. Please tell your friends about us. Check us out at whattheriff.com and follow us on Facebook. Special thanks to our sponsors, Wright Column Financial, Stanton Electric, and Marbury Creative Group. That's all for this week. See you next week on What the Riff?